Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. I, I, I love that you guys completely fell into my trap of turning this into a trilogy. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. It was a good trap, though, man. I mean, that that uh, that idea was solid. I mean, the first one was so much fun. Yeah. And uh, I really didn't know. So I, the reason I have not looked since our last podcast at all about the Fermi paradox, you know, when you brought that up. So I don't know anything about it at all. And I thought if we're really going to do this, I don't want to go into it with any knowledge at all That's of perfect. what we're talking about so that what I can I ask you the question. Yeah, no, and what I love about that then is you can hit me with all of the knee-jerk right. uh, responses that everybody always has, and I will be able to to sort of show you why each one of them, although initially seems to make sense, just just starts to fall apart in your mind as you think more about it. So, well, yeah, Tony knows too much. You, let's see if you can convince me because I I really do believe there's no way, even just mathematically, yeah. that we can be the only life in the universe. I, I right now have no belief in that at yeah. all. Zero way. Crushing dreams right. is just like one of the most wonderful things that you can do. It, it is. is. It is a fun, fun yeah. hobby. It really, yeah. really is. Yeah. Just to, to, to just yeah. Just have take you walk away. Yeah, have you walk away from this recording going, my whole life is a lie? That is that I is just the matter. sweetest prize. Yeah, exactly. The if universe I, is can, empty and we're all going to die. Yeah. And I am irrelevant. If we can come yeah. away with that, then yeah. we've won today. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> let's, not, let's not go too far down this rabbit hole without – I like to say what we're talking about mm -hmm. before and define our terms. So we're talking today with Fraser Kane of Universe Today and everywhere else in the universe about the Fermi paradox. Fraser, will you please tell us what the Fermi paradox is? Sure. Uh, so th this comes from a thought experiment, and I apologize that I don't have all of the details about the Fermi paradox Paradox, sort of at my fingertips. Uh, that's my fault, but hopefully we'll get the gist. But the, the concept is this famous uh, physicist, Enrico Fermi, uh, back in the 1950s, he was one of the people who worked on the, uh, on the nuclear weapon development, a very famous physicist, and was speaking with a bunch of other physicist cosmologies and they were talking about the size and the scale of the universe and the fact that it is just this enormous place and everywhere you look there's galaxies in all directions and when you think about the milky way alone it is you know there's a hundred billion plus stars in the milky way that there's potentially that many galaxies out there that that the ingredients for life here on earth uh, seem to be there right at the beginning. And in fact, literally as quickly as life could have formed on earth, it did. And, and yet the, the sun and the earth are relatively young in the age of the universe. The earth is 4.5 billion years old. The universe is 13.8 billion years old. So we couldn't have been the first that there's many opportunities throughout the age of the entire universe that life could have formed on any one of those other 100 billion stars 
And yet we see no evidence of any other life in the universe. And so the question was, where is everybody? And this is, this is essentially the Fermi paradox, that, that the universe is big and old, and the ingredients for life seem to be everywhere, and life formed here, and yet we don't see any evidence that it did. And it is a, and you know, anyone who thinks they who aren't disturbed by the concept of the Fermi paradox, I think, haven't thought long and hard enough about it. Right. And so what people use to sort of play with this idea of the likelihood of life in the universe is this toy equation called the Drake equation. And basically, it's just a bunch of fractions that when you multiply them up together, uh, you get some number uh, of what they're calling N, which is the number of uh, civilizations that you'd get in the universe. And it's based on things like the rate of star formation, the number of planets that are like Earth, and the fraction of of planets or pl fraction of planets that are within the habitable zone, all these different things. And you can look it up and get all the different uh, terms in it. But it's this toy equation that you can play with that when you pop up some, when you pop up the, um, uh, the, do the, when you do the math, you get a number out. Uh, for the number of civilizations out there. And so, as an example, let's just say that you went through the Drake equation and you typed in the fraction of Earth-like planets, the rate of star formation, and all the things that we know about things. And you just, just to be simple, you say that basically everything has a 0.1 chance of being possible, every little thing in the Drake equation. And if you have 100 billion stars, then if you do the math, you'll come out with 100 planets that should have extraterrestrial civilizations in them. That's just an example, right? If you put point 0.1 in for all the things uh, and you have 100 billion stars in our galaxy, you get 100 civilizations. Well, great, that's awesome. And so uh, the, and th what that means is that if you have 100 billion chances of having life, then the, the chances of them not producing a civilization is something like 10 to the minus 44. It's ridiculously small. It's super tiny. So surely there's life out there. Mm -hmm. Surely there's civilizations out there. Yeah. And, and yet the, the, we've seen nothing. Well, yeah. And so the Drake equation is, is the more scientific mathy version of really that gut instinct that we all have. I mean, there was this beautiful picture that just came out of the Hubble legacy field with 265,000 galaxies. And each one of those galaxies has 100 billion stars in it. And it's really hard not to just look at that picture and just go, there's got to be some life there, right? And that is, you know, that is your instinctual version of the Drake equation. At the end of the day, both will get you to the same conclusion, which is that there should be life everywhere. And, and, and that is like the starting point that I think you have to have to really begin with when you think about this is, is, is most people's in fact we can probably even let dustin uh give us the sort of what is the first reason you know we look at it and go you know why don't we see any evidence that there are aliens there where are they dustin what's your okay, reason so why yeah. we don't see them let's dive right in i've got uh so the first thing i would say is when i look at Right now, humanity is able to send these signals out into space to where if someone else were looking for us, we are at a place finally that we could do that. We could, you know, and we are 
transmitting signals out into space to where eventually they might reach an area distant, you know, obviously it's going to take a long time. These are super distant areas, but around another star, they might get some kind of signal that says, hey, maybe there's someone over there in that direction. But it's only been for a very, very short time that humanity has been able to do that, you know, and so there's been life on this planet for a very long time, but you know, it's not very long that we've been able to kick out these signals. And so when we're looking at these other places, say like the Andromeda galaxy, what is that? 2.5 million light years away, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, is that, yeah. So if, if that's the distance, then 2.5 million years ago, they had to be kicking this out at the speed of light to get it here now. And it had to come in such a short window from wherever mm-hmm. it is that you've got two variables that I think make it extremely difficult. Actually, three, because right, it has to be directional you know, at us. It has to be happening in a window of a time period of, what, 200 years when we're talking about distances of millions of years. Yep. And so it's just such a tiny window. <laughs> Great. Uh, this is this is this is precisely what I wanted you to say. So, so what this this is saying, right, is this is the same argument that you would say. Um, uh, imagine you had two human beings and you drop them on v- random parts on planet Earth. What are the chances that they would run into each other? And the chances are essentially zero. Right. You would, you know, you could run those numbers again and again and again. And the two people would be wandering around planet Earth and they would have no knowledge of anyone else's existence. But that's not how humanity works. The reality is that humanity makes more humanity and goes to fill every nook and crevice of this entire planet. And so the what we sort of see as the future of of us, even us humans, is that we're going to be building at some point, some kind of technology that will allow us to move from this solar system to another solar system. And you don't have to go fast. You can go a very slow fraction of the speed of light. You send one robotic spacecraft to another star system. It harvests the local resources of that star system, makes copies of itself, sends it to 10 other, 1,000 other star systems, And when you do that math, it actually only takes you about a million to 10 million years for a civilization to have started anywhere in the entire Milky Way to have fully colonized the entire Milky Way. And so when you think about how many times that 10 million year snapshot has happened since the beginning of of the universe, right, that you know, how many, say there's a hundred billion stars, each one of those stars could have had a robotic spacecraft released by a newly capable advanced species, you would have overlapping um, exploration of the entire uh, Milky Way, where they would have, you know, there should be copies of these robots everywhere in the solar system, making more copies of themselves and going to other places. And so, it's it's important to think not what you know it's not the the concept is not the random you know that same thing of a random human being wandering around it is about the ability of an advanced technology to essentially spread out and exploit all of the range that it has available to it by any means necessary and with the discovery of say Oumuamua we saw a rock 
make the journey from one star system to another. Astronomers have estimated that there are 30,000 of these asteroids, comets that have started out in other solar systems. They're passing through the solar, our solar system right now. And so if a rock can do it, you can imagine a, an advanced civilization setting up the wherewithal to be able to, to essentially fully colonize the entire Milky Way. And it should have happened just again and again and again, hundreds, thousands of times by overlapping civilizations. Potentially, but don't you think there are a lot of assumptions built into that? Pretty, pretty substantial ones. For one, we're assuming that we know what it takes to to get to another place and to colonize it, and what kind of time frame we should put on that. That's never happened ever, mm-hmm. yep. right? And so we are saying at the current rate that that science is kind of moving and progressing, here's what we think it should take for someone for some civilization to colonize what you were saying, the rate of expansion. I mean, this is an assumption that we really have no reason to put any numbers on at all. It's more likely to say this is the rate at which civilizations destroy themselves. I mean, we we have <laughs> yeah. we have facts in that in that side like right the the dinosaurs were on this planet for 165 million years humanity's been on it the first things resembling a human were what 200,000 years ago mm-hmm. you know modern humans maybe 10,000 well, it might have been closer to two, about 2 million actually but okay. are you making the case of of for or against the universe well, well hear me out so so plus? hear me out okay. here's the piece so it's only in the last, say, what, 300 that we can really start to say, okay, we've been developing with this scientific method that is making things change so rapidly in 200 years, just 200 years of that, you say 2 million, you know, you go from basically nothing to walking on the moon in 200 years, but you also start to destroy the entire planet mm-hmm. along the way, right? In yeah. 200 years. So we have reasons to put numbers on those types of facts. We don't have reasons to say, we know how long it takes to colonize a galaxy. Right. So so what you're describing is this is a concept called the great filter. And the idea is that something, some, some event happens to every single civilization on its attempt to become a galaxy-spanning civilization, whether it is some kind of climate disaster, whether they, some AI, you know, artificial intelligence, robot apocalypse, whether they release some kind of bioweapon that destroys all life on their, on their planet, whether they, um, there is some kind of physics experiment that turns their planet into a black hole. There's some event. And that event is 100% effective every single time that no, li- no civilization can ever avoid it. And if that's the case, then you're exactly right. That if there well, is it wouldn't some- even have to be 100%. It would just have to be enough that it creates this gap in time, right, with all of the other variables included where there has been no contact, at least with this one community in a very small area. Right. right? But it, humanity. No, it needs, God. It needs, no, it needs to be pretty complete. Yeah, it needs to be 100%. It needs to be total, like Fraser said, because uh, there would be some – remember, the galaxy is billions of years old, so there's plenty of time for, for civilizations to come and go. Uh, but none have passed through this great filter. And so it has to be. Pretty, but how do we know that? Effective. We would have to know that in the last 200 years. How do we know that? Well, you would see. So, right. So the point is that you would see the evidence 
there's a there's a couple of lines of evidence that we can see but but let's just imagine there is a civilization that let's say that there are a hundred civilizations that appear randomly across the Milky Way through the last ten million years across one hundred billion stars, and ninety nine of those civilizations wipe themselves out. And one civilization is able to pass through this idea of the Great Filter. They build robotic spacecraft, and those robotic spacecraft turn the surface of every asteroid and moon in the entire Milky Way into, I don't know, uh, garden gnomes, right? So you would, as a as a as an entity that is growing up in a place like the solar system, you would look out and you would see the moon and you would land on the moon and you would realize that the moon was covered in garden gnomes, and that would tell you that an advanced civilization had been here before, and that's a one you know that's a one percent survival rate, and th these are the numbers that I just picked up. Right, the point is, is that if any all it takes is one civilization even out of an enormous number of potential civilizations to cause a dramatic um, change in, in, in what the solar system would look like because they would be harvesting the resources. And that's sort of one way that we can, that we have already essentially studied our solar system. We haven't seen anything like that yet. The other way is some future civilization would grow and grow and grow. And over several hundred or maybe thousand years, it would begin to harness all of the power that's coming from its home star system. And then it would be, you know, this is this idea of a Dyson swarm or Dyson sphere or Dyson swarm. And a, and a thing that is harnessing all of the visible light from its star is, would be releasing a, a form of infrared radiation that would be that's very obvious to see in all sky surveys. You see, you'd see these very weird things in the sky and astronomers have gone looking for them and they haven't seen them. And an even more advanced civilization would be able to spread from star to star and enclose all of them in Dyson spheres and utilize all the power that's coming from their entire galaxy and so the whole galaxy would be giving off this very specific form of infrared radiation. And again, astronomers have looked for this and they haven't found it. We've looked for the signals. We've looked for evidence that they're of, of essentially mega engineering projects. We've looked for physical evidence here in the solar system, the kinds of things that you would expect to see if anyone ever broke through this, this great filter. And so far, we haven't seen any evidence of it at all. The kind of things that we, you would expect that we are going to try to do in the future as we grow into the soul, into the, into the Milky Way. So yeah, and the yes. looking for that technology, looking for the infrared signals, that's a strong argument. I've never thought about that. And that is one that you would think that if something had broke through, at least in this galaxy, we would at least right now have the technology to find that signal, even if faint. And mm -hmm. I mean, that uh, I think that makes sense. But the other side of it is, you know, in one of the assumptions that I have a problem with is this idea that we are in important enough space in our galaxy that we should be visited or should have at any point been visited. So I just looked at, let's take the Grand Canyon. I just pulled this up. You got 5,000 square kilometers in the Grand Canyon National Park, 5,000 square kilometers. That's not that huge a space, right? But I mean, it's big, but the, the stuff we're talking about is way, way bigger. And then you've got 6.38 million visitors to the Grand Canyon each year. That's a lot of people. 
but I bet it would not be hard to go to the Grand Canyon, even across just 5,000 acres, 5,000 square acres, and find places that haven't been touched by humans in thousands, if not ever, of years, mm -hmm. right? Right. And so what I'm saying is we're probably... We're, we're giving ourselves, we're like ego maybe is driving us to say, mm -hmm. we're an important enough spot that somebody should come visit us. And we may just be that spot at the Grand Canyon that's in a corner somewhere nobody cares about. What and if that, you the looked, things that matter. I was going to say, what if you looked for bacteria instead? Sure. But bacteria is probably not going to have massive engineering projects for- No, no, no. I mean, on Earth, Earth, if you went to the Grand Canyon, could you find a place that doesn't have any bacteria? Absolutely. Absolutely. Or no, no, no. You could not find that. Right. Or plants. Mm -hmm. You could, you, I mean, you probably couldn't get more than a couple of meters away from a plant in the Grand Canyon. Now, right. there's, you could go to Antarctica. Right. You could go to the the dry yeah. deserts in in Atacama. There's probably small places you could go, but you scoop up any drop of the oceans, you're going to find life there. Agreed. You're, you you scoop up not, any piece of soil. Right. I don't think you guys would argue. Maybe I'm not following you, but I don't think either of you would argue that there's not life out there. We're saying advanced civilizations. Well, it's possible, and I don't know where where how, how severe Tony is on this argument, but I'm actually, you know, I you follow this rabbit hole far enough, it even seems to suggest that there's no life at all in the in the universe. <clears throat> no but, bacteria. So you think there's no bacteria, even on places like. I don't think we could get out of our solar system without finding bacteria somewhere. Uh, well, we. Well, that's what we're trying yeah, to find out. Yeah, we're looking. We're trying. I um, mean, isn't there isn't there more um, fresh water on Europa around Jupiter than there is on Earth? Uh, I think I believe so. Yeah. I mean, I just think that's really. It's like you said, you can't find one drop. Yeah. Here, it's it's really hard to believe. Yeah. That of all of the things you're talking about floating through space, that there would be no frozen bacteria moving, you know, between these places. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, if you did find life on a place like Europa or Enceladus or in the briny uh, oceans or briny lakes yeah, underneath on, any on Mars, there's a real possibility that the life there is related to the life on Earth, that this idea of panspermia, that that asteroids are smashing into the earth or smashing into Mars and rocks are spreading from world to world and they're passing life from world to world in the solar system is a is a fascinating possibility. And if we do find life on Europa or Enceladus or Mars, really the first question is going to be, are we related? And if it turns out that we are related, then the question is, when were we related? But and if and if the question is that we are not related, then life is everywhere. Yeah. Because because if on t two different spots in the same solar system, life managed to arise independently of each other, then that answers the question of the ubiquity of life across the universe, in my opinion. I used to think that that step of going from primordial ooze to something that's alive was a hard one, that it, it was a spark, that a spark occurred and and life just suddenly appeared. I'm starting to think after I talk to a lot of biologists that what life emergence really is, is a series, uh, a, is a spectrum of more complicated chemistry that eventually ends up resembling, we have amino acids, primordial goo, all this stuff, and then eventually we have something that resembles early cells without the membrane and all this stuff. Uh, so I'm starting to think that maybe early life 
is not a great filter. That spark of life that isn't really a spark is probably a lot easier than I used to think mm -hmm. it was. So I'm evolving on that. But Fraser's right. If we can find life elsewhere in our solar system that has arisen independently, separately from ours, right. then then I think life is incredibly easy to yep. do because it happened twice in the same spot. And bacteria is probably all over the place. Unfortunately, if, if that is the case, then that raises the specter, as we mentioned before, of the great filter that if life is easy to do, then life should be everywhere. And yet we don't see any, any advanced civilizations. Therefore, the great filter, whatever it is, is wiping them all out. And so well, we have a sample size of one, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so, I mean, that's something to consider. We have a sample size of one ourselves. Yeah. And, um, oh and, yeah, there's tons of biases. Yeah. Yeah. Too. You always, and you so, always look at that, you know, you think about it, like if there was a, you, you're flying in an airplane and you threw a dart out of the window, uh, and the dart is going to land at some random spot far below you. And whatever that spot is, it's going to think it was very unlucky to be hit by a dart. <laughs> right um from its perspective uh it is and it was right very unlucky and yet it's from it's looking at it from its perspective and that's the way we are is that until we can find a second example we have yeah. to we still can never truly know what are the percentages of us being able of how many times life can form and evolve separately in the universe and if the number is really, really small, it can absolutely be smaller than the number of stars in the observable universe. And if the number is bigger than that, then life should be everywhere. And if life is everywhere, right. then where is it? Why don't we see any evidence of it? You're back. And right. that's why the paradox is so troubling. I absolutely grant you that the universe is big and old and there's a million, there's a bajillion stars and, and the ingredients for life seem to be everywhere and life seem to take a hold so quickly on earth and yet we have ways for looking at it and yet we don't find it and it is it almost is almost nightmare inducing almost every living thing on earth at least has evolved ways to either camouflage itself or remain you know safe um you know through <laughs> vicious means but a lot of times i i can't imagine that if if there are other life forms out there, that the the entire universe would be a peaceful place, especially not peaceful enough to want to be making these massive engineering projects saying, yeah. here we are. There, so we've, a, we've evolved to make ourselves noticeable. Yeah, right? there Why is a wonderful that? science fiction series uh, by a Chinese author called Xi Jin Liu. I hope I'm saying this right. Uh, and the first book is called The Three-Body Problem. The second book is called The Dark Forest. And the third one is called Death's End. And the gist of... The underlying, you know, I don't want to deeply spoil the book, but what you're describing is essentially the explanation for the Fermi paradox in this book series that that uh, intelligence, advanced civilizations realize that you need to keep your mouth shut, you keep need to keep quiet, and you need to minimize the chance that anyone out there realizes that you're there because it is relatively easy for one advanced civilization to wipe another newly forming advanced civilization out of right. the universe. Right. We detect, yeah. you know, we've built those self-replicating uh, robot robots that, that turn planets into garden gnomes. We detect a, or, or a, a robot capable of dropping an asteroid onto a planet. We detect 
a some new civilization that just sent out their first signals and you know we would see asteroids starting to fall down onto that onto their planet because the entire galaxy uh, recognized a new potential competitor and tried to take them out of commission and it's a terrifying prospect but i don't think it's likely that's a, yeah but i mean it's another thing to consider right if they are this advanced then they're they're likely they've been around a while they're likely old right and if if they've been surviving that long they probably didn't get there by waving their weird alien arms above their head saying here we are guys come kill us yeah yeah, yeah, but I think on the way to getting there, to getting to be, you know, the galaxy bullies, uh, they had to pass through some stages that, that gave themselves away at yeah. some point. And they weren't always stealthy. They weren't always, uh, you know, camouflaged. And so there were parts in their past where they were broadcasting, you know, around the galaxy in some way, or they're making themselves known in some unusual yeah, people way. Always, so, I yeah, people always say like, oh, we shouldn't be transmitting signals out into space because what if we do trigger one of these aliens? Well, the reality is that life itself has been transmitting our existence on Earth for about 500 million years. As long as right. there have been plants filling the atmosphere with oxygen that it has been yeah. obvious to any sure. So what do they call that biosignature? Yeah, that's called the biosignature. Right. Any yeah. alien civilization with telescopes about as good as we've got right now, maybe a little better. The ones that we're good, that we will have available in the next say five years would be able to see evidence of life on our planet out to a gigantic distance away. And so again, it's not that much of a stretch that they go and build one that is ten times bigger, maybe in space, a hundred times bigger, and they're able to essentially survey the atmospheres of every single planet in in an enormous portion of the Milky Way, identify every one of them that has atmospheres with signatures from life and they drop asteroids on them. So uh, sure. we're about to build a, uh, it's called the square kilometer array. It is a radio telescope that's being built in South Africa, in South Africa and Australia. And it, one of the things that it will be able to do is detect the leaked radio emissions from a planet like earth out to, I think about a hundred light years away. So a, a volume of space that contains tens of thousands of stars, the square kilometer array would detect earth, which is, so again, uh, we are building, you know, this kind of technology is available to us. And if we really wanted to spend a, a large portion of our, of the planet's resources to get to the bottom of this question, we could seriously answer this question to a very large volume of space. And it's just a matter of time before we do. And some other alien species would. Well, I want to hear what and you certainly could have yeah. by now. I want to hear more about the Great Filter. I find that interesting because I, I can't imagine that it's not a real possibility. And that's the reason yeah. I brought up the dinosaurs. I'm just saying that when you don't have an advanced civilization, they might be able to live on a planet very peacefully, I mean, relatively peacefully, without destroying the planet for millions and millions of years. But when you have an advanced or a scientific civilization, maybe that's not the case because, like I said, in 200 years, we've gone from, you know, A to B, A being, you know, humanity coasting along 
and B being, hey, um, every day you wonder what you're going to find, right? With uh, global warming and we definitely have the weapons to destroy the planet. And, you know, there are a lot of things that it can be. And that's if we don't get hit by an asteroid or a solar storm or anything else that can kill us. Yeah. Well, almost certainly asteroids and solar storms are not great filters. Those wouldn't qualify because they've happened in the past. Life, you know, they, they can happen many, many times and they're not thorough enough to wipe out complete civilization. I only mean so, that they're part of the equation. They are something that can right. happen. Okay. And so yeah. I think there are higher risk and lower risk things, but I think when you put them all together, you ultimately have highest risk and that's the great filter, right? Like, I mean, how much right. gets through it? Yeah. So by and, definition, and that's what I'm trying to get at. you need to, um, you need something that is 100% effective because you know, based on this idea that life gets its chance many times, hundreds of billions of times here in the Milky Way, uh, hundreds of billions of galaxies out there, you've got you you run these numbers and the odds stack up. And so, if the Great Filter has a ninety nine percent effectiveness, then one percent is getting through, and that one percent is filling the galaxy with garden gnomes. Then it's not effective enough. <laughs> Um, you need something in in ninety nine point nine percent isn't effective enough, right? Like if you just look at the number of 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 stars in the Milky Way, then you would need something that is what ninety nine point and then and then six more nines, right? Ninety nine point nine 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 percent effective for it to garden gnomes are yeah. pernicious and in fact, man I, they I, will I, wait, get through they yeah. will. <laughs> so in fact i don't even think i put enough nines there right and so and, and <laughs> they will get they get through. through and so you need and so when you think of the kinds of things you're like like global warming is an existential threat for for humanity maybe not an existential threat for humanity it's an existential threat for our current uh standard of living but it's not going to wipe out all yeah, human I, I beings, wouldn't, I wouldn't right? Say You're, exactly. We would be I, I the worst case scenario is that we get thrown back to a lower level of technological prowess. The carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere slowly over time. We build up our technology again and take another crack at it. So global warming won't do the trick. An asteroid impact won't do the trick. You say take another crack yeah. at it. Like we can destroy this planet, yeah. damn it. Yeah, Let's no. Take another stab sure, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it's done, just bear well, with that us. May, that may be though, Dustin, a, a, a characteristic of technological advancement. That may be inevitable. I mean, that may be something that happens. And if it's not us, it'll be the it'll be the dolphins. And if it's not the dolphins, it'll be the octopuses. And, you know, it'll be the parrots. Like some some life form. Is that the plural? Is that o the plural of octopus? octopuses? Yeah. Look it up. <laughs> okay, I know. I know I you want it to be octopi, but it's, it's octopuses. <laughs> I know. I, trust me. I've. I've. Oh, to my great shame. Yeah. This, to man. my great He's shame. Done. I've. I found how? this out. You, you come prepared to podcast, man. I mean, it's like Fraser is I'm ready. ready. Always. Um, yeah. I'm tired yeah. of Always ready. Octopuses. So yeah. let me. So so when I you know they <laughs> I I put my I absolutely am going to bet on them because they they're they've got eight arms. They can fit a lot through arms. small areas. Oh, octopuses. They are, uh, yeah, they're, they can change colors. Uh, yeah, they're great. They're really smart yeah. too. So I, that's, that's who I like to put my money on. But so if we don't do it, and so you can think about the kinds of things, right? It's like, well, an asteroid strike, well, an asteroid strike might wipe out all of the surface life forms, but um, 
it, some again the octopuses right they just show up and they they begin their domination uh a solar flare a supernova going off nearby like these would all be a very bad day but none of them meet the criteria of right. of an absolute right. extinction event for all life on the planet and you can get kind of close when you think about say artificial intelligence because you can imagine artificial intelligence arising they decide to turn all atoms on the planet into some sort of computing substrate computronium and there's no more life left now there's just computers except that doesn't work either because then where are all the alien robots right we would expect yeah where's yeah, all the, AI the alien robots would be would be best equipped to travel from from star to star making more and do yeah, it exponentially, and by now right. many times. And so over. we know that okay. that a- right. AI isn't the solution, and we we can think of physics experiments like turning your planet into a black hole, because that would then turn like your star into the black hole, and then the star would disappear from existence, and we see stars. So, so it actually makes the kind of event not only something that we see out there. It's not. It can't be something we see. It is possibly something that we can't imagine because if we could imagine it, then we would attempt to prevent it. And that's the creepy, like that's the nightmarish idea about the great filter is that it is most likely something that we are incapable of preventing because nobody was able to ever prevent it ever before. Right, right. So why does it have to be 100%? So I still don't, I'm not wrapping my head around why it has to be 100% unless we're saying there's no life at all. Yeah, so if you take a sandwich and you kill all the yeast, all of the bacteria on that sandwich, but you leave one tiny little corner and and you leave it out for a day, well, say for a week, what do you get? But you don't get advanced civilization. No, but you get get yeast covering every part, or you get bacteria covering every part. Mold—that's the—that's the term I was looking for. I can get octopuses, but I can't call you know mold. Yeah, so you put leave a little bit of mold. You kill all the other mold on your sandwich. You come back a week later, and mold has colonized the entire sandwich. It doesn't matter where you leave the mold, right? Any the the mold will recolonize your entire sandwich, no matter where you start, and that's the idea. Sure. But why? So why is there no separation in this idea between advanced civilizations and just life in general? Because even if even imagine civilization technology is the mold, if it got ninety nine point nine percent wiped out, there's still a little bit left, and it will act like the mold, and it, it maybe it may there may be a setback. But my there may my be point a pause is, or a delay, but it will come back. My point and is that, that there could so, be a much larger gap between life and advanced civilizations than just no life and life. Right. But again, the idea is as long as it can happen once, you know, all it has to do is happen once in this entire Milky Way, and we would see the evidence of their of their past empire. So it's not possible then that there's life all over the the entire galaxy and all of the galaxies. I mean, we're talking about life. We're talking about bacteria, maybe even things like fish and birds, right? But there are not humans or things that are advanced or more advanced than humans. Maybe that is something extremely rare. So there's life everywhere, but intelligent life on that level is extremely yeah, rare. And, is that yeah, not and, possible? And, and, that could yeah, be and then, so you're describing another version of the Great Filter. Right, that that the great filter is something like 
the great filter is something that can appear at any point in the history of a life form. And so either we have already passed the great filter, the great filter happened the jump from single-celled organisms to multicellular organisms or from from uh you know more primitive intelligence to an advanced intelligence that that is something that is incredibly rare but the but the more you move forward along that you know when we look at the capabilities of dolphins and octopuses and parrots and and pigs and all of these different animals some of which are dramatically different and their level of advanced intelligence it you can see that it it does seem possible that any one of them given enough time will will figure out technology and when they do then the race is on right the second any sure. as soon as the dolphins invent technology uh or the octopuses because they've got you know more the ability to manipulate objects um then then a million years after that you've the octopuses have colonized the entire milky way and so it's so it's just where when does the great filter appear and so that is the one possibility. The one possibility is the great filter is either in our past, we have already passed it, and we are the first, or the great filter is in our future, and we will be wiped out by it like all the other life forms that have come before us and thought that right. they could think their way through this one. It may be extremely rare, and that's that's what I'm getting at. Is So if there are uh, – you guys probably know better than I do, but let's say 20 million or 50 million species – on the um, the Earth, right? We know of one that can do these things and that can get to space. The first one. Okay. Right. So yeah, right now we know of one. So we don't know if it's one out of, say, 30 million or if it's one out of 600 million. We have no idea. We just know that out of, say, 30, 40 million, 50 million, whatever it is, we know that one so far has that capability right or or ever is it going to be a possibility but we know right? that and the so, first time that it happened the first time earth was able to produce a life form capable of technology technology it went to space right okay so we but we have no Which idea is an argument against these people who don't want to let themselves be known and they just want to hide I, well, I think it's just it's just argument. that you okay. know if we saw many many examples be. of of technological life forms if we saw the dinosaur the dinosaur civilization before us and the and the octopus civilization before them and maybe i don't know some kind of uh some kind of slug maybe um then well, now you got me worried yeah, about garden yeah, homes. No, They're sure. next. And oh, then, my then, God, then we would I know mean, I... that, wow, you know, we would be a lot more careful because we would say, okay, we, we know of these 10 previous completely different civilizations that arose, got to, to high levels of technology, and then wiped themselves out. But, but, the, but literally the first time planet Earth was able to generate a life form capable of going to space, it did. And it's never looking back. But I, I still think of that. I still think of that. So part of the argument earlier was that we're not seeing any signals. Like we're not seeing these big infrared signals or anything else coming from space. But if there's life everywhere and it, there just isn't technologically advanced life everywhere, because maybe it's way more rare than we know, then that's a completely different argument than there is no life because it's impossible and it would require a 100% great filter. It wouldn't. Yeah. 
Not if there's, say, out of, you know, one out of every hundred billion places that have life have intelligent life on that level, then the filter wouldn't have to be that good. It would just have to be, you know, good enough to get rid of those very, very few. Yeah. So the, I mean, the the two answers to the Fermi paradox that I find um, uh, that, that seem to hold for me is either one, we are the first. Right, we are we are we are the only civil advanced civilization in the entire uh, observable universe that has ever Which made it hard to, wrap to your head this level of technological right. development, and are about to colonize the the universe. I hope, um, or at least out, we are going to survive for a while. Right, mm-hmm. and and that is like I get it. Like that is such a. Um, hubristic thing to say, right? Like, like how is it possible? And your instinct is to say, how is it possible that we are the first? And then you come back to, but somebody has well, to and, be, and, and well, for sure, somebody has to be. And then you come back to where is everybody? And then you're trapped in the Fermi paradox. And then you start to, right? So that is the one possibility yeah. is that we are the first. Somebody had to be first. Maybe it's us. Um, it seems highly unlikely that it's us. And yet, where is everybody? Boom. You're trapped in your Fermi, your, your, Fermi paradox. The other possibility is that the great filter is absolute, that it wipes out every civilization that ever makes it to a certain level of technology, which is a horrifying thought, right? That no matter how hard we try, we are doomed, like all the other civilizations, um, to get past it. Uh, Except we're going to make it this time because, you know, we're always the hero in our own story. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to make it. I couldn't it. agree more with that. That's 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 an outstanding summary. I agree. So that with and that's it. Those are the. So those are, I, the, I feel like the, that's where I always end up. Or mm-hmm. couldn't it be what we just kind of described, which is technologically advanced civilizations are extremely rare, and the Great Filter is good enough that there's life out there, but it's not just cropping up everywhere. It's it's not. I mean, in an entire galaxy, maybe it happens twice. Right. And the filter is good enough. Like even with humanity, there's a real chance that we can destroy ourselves. And it's good enough that life is rare and that we in our 200 years have not found the life in galaxies 200 million years away or whatever. But it just back to remind you, the surveys we've done looking for evidence of galactic civilizations have turned up none. How so? How how well can we do the service? Can we look at like say the whirlpool? What is that? Twenty eight million light years away. How can we see if there would be a civilization there? Would we be able to see that? So so what we could see. So the so this is this idea of 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 the various levels of the, the Kardashev scale, right? And so you've got that. I think I accidentally called it the Kardashian scale at one point uh, in a recent podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the Kardashev scale, right? Is this is this. That's yeah, I know it's the, right it's the, it's yeah. the, the worst. Yeah, it yeah, filters exactly. everybody off from listening to this podcast. So, so <laughs> the thinking goes like this, right? Like if you trace human energy use all the way through to the to the beginning of human history, it, and you track it on an exponential scale, on a on a, you can see this essentially steady curve that goes up and up and up. And what that means is that human society over time has always wanted more energy it's just it's just inevitable right and so it is it is perfectly reasonable to then say you know if you just take this curve and you plot it out into the future 
then you can see a time when humanity will use an amount of energy equivalent to what falls on planet Earth from the sun. It's some enormous number. And then you can mm-hmm. then you can chart that path forward again and say there will come a point when humanity will use all of the energy of our entire star. All the energy that the star emits, humanity will want to use. What are we going to use it for? Who knows, right? Uh, yeah, we don't know right. what we're going to use it for. We can just we can just predict based on the historical numbers that we always will. And you can chart that that path forward, and you can get to a point when when humanity will want to use all of the possible energy that comes from the entire galaxy. And and in that case, actually, the limit is is the speed of travel. So, uh, you know, you can chart forward. And I think we get uh, within a couple of hundred years, we will reach that first level. It's the Kardashev one, a type one civilization. We will be using an equivalent to the amount of energy that falls on the earth. Uh, a few hundred years after that, maybe a, a couple of thousand at the most, we will have reached a type two civilization where we will be using all the power that comes from the star. That's this idea of a Dyson sphere or a Dyson swarm. And then a few million years after that, we will reach a type three civilization, which is where we have arranged the stars in the entire Milky way to our, to whatever is the best configuration. And we will have enclosed all those stars in a, in a Dyson swarm, and we will be extracting all of the energy of the entire Milky Way. And it won't take long, like in, a, in, in the universe's perspective. So a, a star enclosed by a Dyson swarm will give off a certain wavelength of infrared radiation because you're, you're, you're blocking the visible light. You're then using it for something, and then you have to give off that light as heat. And so it would be blazing in the infrared spectrum and it would, it would look totally different from, from what a regular unenclosed galaxy looks like. You would see, you would see the stars arranged into funny shapes, which whatever is most efficient and that, and that you wouldn't see stars giving off visible light the way we do. You would see them giving off infrared and you would see galaxies, which are part way through the colonization. So you would see ones that are half infrared and half visible light because the, whatever civilization is out there is halfway through the job. And again, we look out, we look at things like the Hubble legacy field that just came out, 265,000 uh, galaxies in one tiny sliver of the sky stretching back to 13.5 billion years ago, and we don't see any of these. And, and astronomers have absolutely done surveys looking specifically for these kinds of type three civilizations, and they haven't seen them. So uh, that is the thing that we would hope, expect to see. What do you think about the idea of um, civilizations maturing over time to where their desires change? And maybe that the level, like maybe right now we're still, I mean, a very adolescent civilization. Right. And so we see this as, yes, you need to expand and expand and expand and use up all the energy you possibly can and do all these things. Maybe there is a place where you get where it's more about stability. It's about expand enough you're protected, but don't overexpand and put yourself at right. risk. And and so the idea about that, and I mean, that is not something that we see in life in just in the Darwinian struggle for existence here on planet earth. We don't see any life form 
getting to a certain point and going, I've got enough sunlight, I've got enough nutrients, right? That that if it has access to more nutrients, then it then it uh, replicates and acquires those resources and keeps going. And any advanced civilization that that does that would then be sort of at risk to a civilization that is willing to outwork them to go, go for, for it. it. Yeah. Right. To, as we say in Canada to give her. So, um, <laughs> you know, you would imagine some alien going like, that's it. You know what? We've reached enough. And I think, you know, in our, in our personal lives, like we should absolutely aim for enough for, for peace and tranquility and, and being able to cause a very small impact on our local environment. Right. But, but in the, in the, well, I'm just saying those may be lessons that all civilizations learn over time is that if we want to survive, the path is to abandon our Darwinian it nature. It is, it is hard to abandon that entirely and to outthink it. It's them. hard to imagine a scenario where some alien advanced civilization hasn't just said, I want all of it. And so, and so the problem yeah. Yeah, is that true. for every civilization that does say, okay, that's it. That's fine. That's enough. You're going to have the one who says, nope, there would I still need all be of it. that one. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so we would, yeah. well, that's humanity. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We're, we're going to be the one. Probably, we're the first, yeah. We're like the first said. and we're the worst. <laughs> so, uh, you know, watch out aliens. You think you've, you think you've got it. Well, here comes, you know, you haven't seen humanity yet. We, we like all of it. And, and that's, and that is obviously, you know, the thing that's going yeah. to that's going to cause our uh, potential uh, extinction here on Earth, right? As we, <laughs> yeah, global warming has hit the whatever four hundred and fifteen parts per million, the highest level of carbon dioxide in in the history of humanity, and we and we're doing it. We are well on our way to ruining our environment. But the risk that we face is really we're going to wipe ourselves out. And then give the octopuses a chance. So, 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 but that that argument, right? Of like, what if some alien decides is always runs back against the numbers, which is fine. You know, have one who's decided to be to just exist in solitude. If you run the numbers big enough, let's say fifty percent decide they want to live in solitude, you're going to have fifty percent who are gonna are gonna give her, and so. Yeah, I hope that. Yeah, I, well, it's definitely yeah, our well, nature. You, right? you would use that, you know, when you're standing at the top of your of your mountain bike run and you just go over the edge and you just go crazy. So I I love the fact that I can spread that across the across the world with this planet reaching yeah. uh, podcast. And, and we and we would. I mean, we go outside and we look at you know Mars, and then you got Elon Musk. It's like, guys, <laughs> I want that. Want yeah. that. Somebody yeah. get I up there cover and plant, that. plant yeah. the SpaceX I flag on terraform that. that, and I want to mine <laughs> it, and I want to turn it into cities, and I want to back up for humanity and jeff bezos says, well that's yeah. great but i want to mine all of the asteroids and turn them into gigantic rotating o'neill cylinders and some future person is going to go you guys are all thinking too small it's a dyson swarm baby so yeah so and so the the and that's the problem is that every time you you think of a of a possible argument against it you have to say it has to be 100%. What, what about, about the, the one? one? What about the one? You know, yeah, what, what about you know the, the, one? the argument that people say, it's like, well, what if Earth is actually in a zoo? What if there is a galactic civilization and they are they are not letting us know 
that we live in this civilization. They're waiting for us to demonstrate our maturity, which I guarantee we never will. Um, uh, but, but again, you say, what if the one, what for, you know, for every, for every 99, uh, uh, spaceship captains who adhere to the prime directive. You've got a Captain Kirk who's willing to to show up and and woo our Earth women. So it is just mm-hmm. you know it always goes back to you've got whatever answer you have. It has to be one hundred percent of the time. What do you? Uh, so I want to know what you two think. So obviously this is the Fermi paradox we're talking about. Is this what you believe? Fraser, you think, I mean, when you think about this, is this what you feel like? All right, that's most. Yeah, so yeah, like, am I being devil's advocate or, you know, just to yank your chain and just fill you with doubt and and ennui? No, this is, this is what I really, this is what I really feel that every time I think about the Fermi paradox, that I come back around to where is everybody? And, and, and because I think that, Part of it is that I think that if we think that we are just one of the many civilizations in the universe, it removes our responsibility for taking care of this planet and and taking care of each other. That it says we don't have to worry to do this right because the 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 Klingons will sort it out and and make sure that that the universe is filled with life. And 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 to think about, you know, there's this classic quote and I forget who said it, right? That if the universe is empty, it's an awful waste of space. That life is such a wonderful thing. That intelligent life is such a wonderful thing. The universe is improved by its existence. The universe is improved by octopuses, by whales, by by you know, uh, by insects, by trees that can you imagine how much the universe would be worse without those things? And it is improved by us, by human beings, by our art, by our, by our, our relationships, our interactions, the things that we do and say, it is potentially harmed by them as well. But if we're, if it's just us and we screw this up, then the universe lost a chance to be wonderful. And, and so if we assume that we're not alone, then we stop taking, being willing and to take responsibility for, for making this stick. And that's the, that's where I think it comes home for me personally is to just say, man, it would really be terrible if we had this shot, if we had this opportunity, if we had that And in our lifetime as human beings, we messed it up and we just brought the universe back to lifelessness. And until we find it, until we have evidence that it's out there and and can breathe safe and say, whew, you know, it's not just us. It's not, we're not the only ones who are holding this responsibility. Uh, We have to assume like it is. And so I, that's why I think that's why I'm such a fan of space exploration. It's why I'm such a, I I love the search for life. I love the searches on Mars and the ideas of searching for life on Europa and Enceladus and the, and this, what the SETI Institute is doing and, and this whole idea of biosignatures and, and why it could be such a wonderful, uh, you know, technique to find if there's life out there when square kilometer array 
boots boots up and we'll be able to start hearing for leaked communication from other civilizations. I I think we should be looking. And if we do find it, then then the pressure's off. Then we can go and, you know, ruin our planet and not worry about it and know that, that later on the aliens are going to deliver their garden gnomes and and everything will be fine. But but until then, it's and it's I, up to us to do a better to do a better job and to take this seriously and be responsible and and make this universe better than than how we found it. Yes, all of these things uh, are uh, I, I agree with, and the going back to the issue of being the first, being the perhaps even the only life in the universe. While I agree that it is a highly improbable event, and it's probably the the, the height of hubris to to say that we are the only ones here. It is, it, it's not without precedent. The universe has lots of improbable things happening in it. In fact, the existence of the universe itself is considered by most astronomers to be an improbable occurrence. So there's nothing to suggest that this could not be true. And in fact, it's, it's you know, even though it's improbable, it's entirely within something we should think about, that yeah. this is a possibility, that we are it, that we are the only ones here. Yeah, well, and so, you know, what you're describing, is. this idea that, you know, the, <laughs> so what you're saying, if I'm, if I'm right, is that the universe is big and that it's old and that uh, life seemed to have formed here on Earth. And it seems incredibly improbable that life could have formed anywhere else in the universe. And yet, where is it? Welcome. You know, we just we just go back it's to the right Fermi here. paradox again. And just exactly. So I've got to say, I think it's it's beautifully argued. It is, and I think it's it's fascinating. It's something I've never heard or thought about. I've never even considered the idea, to be honest with you, in a real way that we could be the only life out there in the universe. I've never even. It just seems so improbable. Yeah. Well, it's and, against our common sense, isn't it, right. Dustin? I it mean, is it, absolutely. It, 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 it is. It doesn't Especially. sit well with anybody. And considering you, it's like you said, Fraser. You can't go anywhere on Earth and not scoop up just a teaspoon of the ocean or or any anything and not find bacteria and life everywhere. It's everywhere. And so the idea that in the entire universe we would be the only life to me felt. Like this is impossible, but I have to say, I still don't think that I'm, I'm not sold at all. I'm not sold on this. I don't think that we are the only life. I definitely don't think that, um, you know, we're the only intelligent life. I still see it as not just improbable, but next to impossible. And I think that a lot of things, like one thing I know for sure is the universe couldn't give a shit less about our understanding of it. Right. And Things happen all the time that we later have to go back and say, okay, now that we know this, let's start over and let's redefine our understanding of this. And if we went back to our old selves and said, you know what, we're going to fly across that ocean, it would have been very easy for us to reason the impossibility of it and how it would never in a million years happen. Never. It would never happen until it does. And that seems to me the more the way the universe really works is everything's impossible until it's just not anymore. You know, and <laughs> our understanding of it couldn't mean less. Really couldn't. Well, I, I would like to make a distinction here between just because something is improbable uh, and unlikely does not equate to any, anything at all about importance. I, w I would I would say that just because we it's improbable that we are the only life in the universe doesn't immediately give credence to the idea that we, that we inhabit any kind of, that the universe gives us any credence or importance just because of that. It just happens to be a first. 
and there are firsts all over nature. Yeah, so and, and it, somebody I, has I to, be to be the first, that. right? Like it seems improbable right. that we would be the first. It seems like you said, like the height of hubris, but but the truth is, somebody has to be the first, and it could be. And, us. and it doesn't yeah. equal important. Yeah. I just no, want to make that. Point. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I agree, but I just think that in assuming that we know anything about the universe or that our current understanding is enough to know for sure or to not even know for sure, but just to assume that this is any more likely than the other side. I just, I still don't see it. I really okay. don't. I still don't see it. We, we failed, but that's, and I think, look, here's the thing. I got a 17 inch plane wave in my observatory. I'm going to yeah. go find these sons yeah. of bitches tonight for you guys, just to prove a point. Just to prove hey, do me a, a favor, man. Please, if you see anything with a pointy <laughs> yeah. hat, will you please let you me think know? It's yeah. the I can't gnomes? sleep yeah. now. So I, you think it's the garden gnomes with the pointy hat, or the one well, that's they're the ones that are the in constant I battle across the, the uh, across the universe? <laughs> the, <laughs> that's that's yeah. the eternal yeah. cosmic struggle, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's the but that's the that's the existential yeah, battle. But I mean, don't you at least, Dustin, feel this? anxiety and tension and flopping back and forth oh, right in a huge and so way. i've got to say your argument is and very convincing and extremely that's convincing. and that's it and really I, is. that is what i think shook enrico fermi and team to the core was to just go universe is big and old and life should form and yet where is it and that you spend time just in this spiral just freaking out and I think that 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 alone is 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 important, right? That we can't have certainty that there there's such a compelling argument both ways that you are locked in this paradox, and that's why it's called a paradox. Is because you know it's not yeah. called whatever a truth statement or any of this. It is a paradox. You will you will spend your and I myself do it too. I just you spend time just whirling around the paradox, going yeah, but it's not possible. And then you go but yeah, but where is everybody? Yeah, but it's right. it's super unlikely. Yeah, exactly. but where is everybody? So that's that's I think that is the only outcome that I really hoped for was that you and the listeners of podcast would just f feel unnerved by the. Oh, if you can think about yeah. this and not feel it, yeah, and you're not and, thinking. And Arthur about C. Clarke had the greatest quote for this, right? He said, two possibilities exist: either we are alone in the universe, or we're not. Both are equally terrifying." <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Well, and I think that's what the paradox is. What takes it out of the realm of science because because it's a paradox, and into the realm of philosophy, where you really start to have to grapple with the questions of meaning and existence in the first place. And it it really kind of, I mean, it's a lot to ask of yourself to really grapple with either side of it. If we are alone, then the definition of meaning, at least for each of us individually, really mm -hmm. has to kind of be looked at. Yeah. And but what, wonderfully, what it is, is, it mean, is a scientific question. in this entire universe. Right? So uh, that, that we actually sure. can look and and our techniques can get better and better and we can we can build more sensitive telescopes and we can examine wider absolutely deeper volumes of the universe and 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 even if we spend a thousand years searching for the answer it is a worthwhile way for us to spend our time because it is the most important scientific question that we can possibly ask and the numbers just the more we discover the more we look and find things out the more that the the argument that we're the only ones in my opinion keep getting 
reinforced because we've learned recently from Kepler that there are on, on average 1.6 planets around every star in our in our galaxy. There are used to be 100 billion or so stars in our galaxy. Well, now it's closer to a trillion. So the numbers keep getting higher, which means that there is more of a chance of these things yeah. happening than we thought before, and yet we still have not seen. Gaia is looking at a billion stars right now in our galaxy the, it, more accurately than we've ever looked at these stars, and still there is nothing that's coming out. So the more we look the, and the more things we find out about the universe, the more it's reinforced that we're yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, but so, I still think it's extremely rare. I mean, there are a lot of planets. We're finding all these things, but like, can you imagine? Go live on Mercury, man. That would <laughs> suck. It would suck to live on Mercury, yeah. you know? And I just think, sure, we, we may be finding all these planets with like, like Jupiter or, or these other types of planets, but it doesn't mean that that it's we're there we're finding inhabitable planets everywhere and i just think when you look at all the different filters it to me leans toward something well i think you're introducing really uh, chapter three of this trilogy which which is which oh, is, here of we course, go. earth is the best place to live and we shouldn't <laughs> colonize uh other planets <laughs> We could have done a whole podcast on your hatred for Mars. <laughs> yeah, last time. Yeah, that was the no. So, uh, thing, see, but uh, but I said right. I I told you there were there were three parts to this, and uh, so we covered the second one, which is the uh, the Fermi paradox. At some point, should the fans ask for it, we will have the third uh, in this trilogy of uh, of Fraser going against the crane, um, and uh, talk about uh, why I think uh, colonizing other planets is a terrible idea. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'd agree good. with you. Yeah, that sounds like a good podcast. But I think that uh, this has been one of the most interesting podcasts we've done, Fraser. Um, fascinating, fascinating. It really is, yep, and it's a, really good. It's a great argument. It's just, um, it's really hard for me to fathom that we could be alone in the universe. But um, really appreciate you coming on. And, oh, and I'm always happy to us. have this conversation. It's one, one of my favorite conversations to have, and uh, and I and I love. Just getting trapped in the in the mystery yeah. of the Fermi paradox. You're, you're good at it. Just casually breaking people's <laughs> hearts. Like you're good at that. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's yeah. a it's a gift. It's Way a gift, go, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now, now I have to go get some therapy about you know, about yeah, these garden gnomes. There's all kinds of things now. Yeah. That I'm, I'm not, I chose I'm garden gnomes because I wanted about, about. So think of something that, that you really. could turn lunar regolith into. And that's why I pick garden gnomes, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've got to walk out of this okay. room and tell the staff yeah. they're alone in the universe. Thanks, <laughs> they, that they're yeah. that they have a they have are, yeah, additional you're... responsibilities they weren't originally prepared for when they came <laughs> when they when they joined OPT. That's right. So you know you've got to, we've got to build and sell telescopes and also life in the either discover uh, life in the universe <laughs> or spread life to other star systems. Go. Your, your compensation <laughs> depends on it. We got a little more work to do, guys. Yeah. That's right. Don't forget. Yeah. Your par yeah, will be in a sharing. year, so don't forget. We're going to be we're judging you oh, based on this. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah I, I can just imagine. I can just Definitely imagine gonna do another podcast. You know, the performance interview, right? Did you find life in the universe yet? No. I'll let you know yeah. what Did you colonize another star system yet? No. Oh. Mm. All right. No. <laughs> get out. Mm, boy. Then get I out. I think we're going to have to look elsewhere. <laughs> I think. Thank you for your time. But you're yeah, not yeah. a good fit yeah, with we'll our big, we'll big job here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. man. Okay, guys. Well, this has been a great one. Thank I, you for I look forward to part three, guys. On behalf of both of my guests and us. Part three. Should we go into space at all? 
And uh, I'm gonna, uh, yes, that's a good question. So that'll be our coming next. Soon. That'll be a good topic for for part three coming soon. So thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.